I'm Angel, passionate birth worker and podcast host of the Birth Rebel Podcast. I'm bringing you a blend of heart, soul, and a bit of controversy. Join me on my podcast where I dive fearlessly into thought-provoking discussions about the most controversial topics in pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, and postpartum. I'm unmasking the truths. I'm challenging norms and sparking conversations that matter. Let's celebrate the beauty of the perinatal space while fearlessly confronting the tough questions together. Tune in for guest interviews from health professionals leading the charge into changing the perinatal space and my own expertise in diverse topics. All right, Birth Rebel, let's jump into it. I'm super excited to uh, have this discussion topic with you today, Aubrey. This is amazing. Um, I've known Aubrey for a little while now, and we kind of work together um, almost adjacently and also together um, as we're a part of the Kangaroo Collective here in Cleveland. Um, we also both have had premature babies. Now, I had two 31-weekers. What about you, Aubrey? Just one 30-weeker. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty early. So we have a lot of experience, both personally and um, professionally, with working with premature babies. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about um, breastfeeding premature babies, but also when it comes to human milk fortifiers. So if you're a premature uh, or a NICU parent or a baby that's premature, you probably have already had this discussion um, with using human milk fortifiers with the pediatricians and the NICU nurse staff. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion on whether or not human milk fortifiers should be used for premature babies. And it also kind of comes down to the composition of breast milk, which we're going to get into. But before we do that, Aubrey, how about you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about what you do and all that great stuff. Sure. So I am a registered dietitian and I specialize in pediatric and perinatal. So basically that means I do everything from helping moms get pregnant, stay pregnant, go into postpartum, and then breastfeeding and beyond. Um, I'm also a certified lactation counselor and I have three current children and then I am expecting our fourth. <laughs> so, and I have nursed or breastfed in some capacity, all of my kids so far, my preemie never actually nursed, but I exclusively pumped for her for 15 months. So I've done all versions <laughs> of breastfeeding. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And same here. Um, I've breastfed, I have five kids. I've breastfed them all in a variety of different capacities um, for breast pumping and nursing at the breast, all that good stuff. Um, and I didn't also mention that, yes, we are both certified lactation counselors. So it's so, <laughs> we are not just kind of like, just. <laughs> you know, talking about nothing or anything like we have studied a lot on this topic. And so, yeah, let's kind of get right into it. So can you tell me a little bit about what human milk fortifiers are and why they are used? Yeah, so there's actually some different kinds. There are specific fortifiers that are mostly for calories. 
Um, and then there are protein specific fortifiers. And then there are fortifiers that do kind of a combination of things and also have vitamins and minerals. And so there's all sorts of different types. They're used primarily with premature babies, but can also be used with babies that um, aren't taking in enough orally or don't tolerate volume well. And so it's just a way to get in more calories or more nutrition in a smaller package. So that's kind of what they're primarily used for. Awesome. Awesome. Great. So when it comes to using it for like premature babies using the human milk fortifiers, how do they normally administer that to uh, the babies? Yeah. So what's really interesting is that, you know, I did a ton of research to see where the like most updated research was on this topic and what I'm finding, which is often the case with breastfeeding as well as just maternal health in general the research is lacking. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's some, um, but it's inconsistent as to how it's applied. It's inconsistent as to um, whether there are actual like standard recommendations. And so a lot of the fortification depends on the NICU you're in um, and what their philosophy is. But for most NICUs, it's some version of once baby is able to take something not TPN, so either through a tube or through their mouth, once they get up to a particular volume, um, a certain amount of calories per kilogram, um, they will start adding fortification. And so then once they do that, they kind of build on that until they get to the baby's goal rate. And that's based just on calculations of baby's age, baby's birth weight, what we ideally would expect to see for growth, et cetera. So it, it, it varies slightly. Um, if the baby is being fed formula, fortifiers aren't always used because they can just fortify the formula itself um, by using more powder to less liquid. But with breast milk, they will just add, a, essentially they're adding some sort of like formula-esque powder um, to boost that, those the certain um, elements of the breast milk. Okay, great. And so I remember like when I had my baby in the NICU, it was all about the calories. Like we want the baby to have more calories, more calories, more <laughs> calories. So me being like first time being in the NICU with my baby, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I, my breast milk doesn't have enough calories. I was like kind of confused and they don't really go into detail about it. So why don't you kind of go into more detail about calories and the calories in your breast milk and you know how those fortifiers increase the calories or you know tell me a little bit more about that yeah so it's really interesting because we kind of assume so formulas are based off of breast milk right and so we kind of assume that breast milk is around 19 to 20 calories per ounce that's the assumption in reality when we actually look take a bunch of samples from a bunch of moms and this varies feed to feed day to day i mean like it varies wildly um that's not true <laughs> it can be way above that it can be way under that so it's really a vast range of variation um and it's not super clear as to why that is um so you have some moms that seem to now there is some like for example i anecdotally see that moms that produce are like considered overproducers tend to have less fatty milk 
Um, because again, their body is assuming babies removing a ton of milk. They don't need that many calories. So it kind of like lowers. Whereas babies that do um, more consistent feeds or mom's not doing a lot of extra pumping, et cetera, I often see that's a little more high calorie um, because the again, the mom's body is trying to adjust to what they think the baby will need. With preemies, it gets really challenging. What we see is that initially mom's milk does seem to be higher in calories, higher in protein, higher in certain nutrients, but that doesn't seem to stick around for longer than a couple of weeks. So there's just, for some reason, the studies that have looked at this, and again, there aren't a ton, but the ones that have, have found that while there is a difference initially, that difference isn't as pronounced as we get further and further away from the baby's actual birth. So that becomes complicated because that baby may still need extra things, but the breast milk may not be compensating for it. We can go down a whole nother path where there's now research that also suggests you may be able to alter the composition of your breast milk, at least within reason. One of the most, so lactose, the main carbohydrate or sugar in breast milk stays pretty consistent no matter whose sample you're looking at in terms of the ratios. Fat is the most variable. And we see that mom's fat can go really high or really low, but it's not specifically based on her eating a lot of fat. So it's a little challenging to figure out, for example, leaner moms tend to have lower fat milk. So it, it's not directly related to just mom's ingestion of fat. Protein also appears to be variable. And that one does seem slightly to count in terms of mom's intake. Moms having more good protein intake seem to have slightly higher protein in their milk. So, but again, it, it just varies so wildly and that can change from one session to the next session, one day to the next day. Um, so it's really hard to like count on any standard for breast milk. Right. And as you know, like both of us being lactation counselors, breast milk is, it changes even <laughs> with, you know, a full term baby. And so um, it really is kind of hard, you know, factoring environmental factors, factoring, you know, some of mom's diet too as well. And then how often baby is breastfeeding um, can also impact what's going on with the breast milk, is baby ill, things like that. So there's, there is a ton of factors. So you kind of mentioned like the first couple of weeks, it's usually higher in calories. Is that really just kind of due to the fact that it's just colostrum during that first couple of weeks? It doesn't appear to be related to that because it's different than if you just looked at the colostrum of a full-term baby. There does seem to be a significant difference between preterm babies and the, um, the full-term babies. But again, it's unclear why. Um, it's not clear if it's because the body would have been shunting extra nutrients to the baby to be growing in utero during that time. Because we know that last trimester is really when babies pack on the pounds. And so perhaps the body had already like relegated these nutrients for that baby. And then it's coming out in the breast milk instead. Um, you know, it's really unclear as to what's creating that. And the other, as you know, the other complication is many preterm deliveries, moms have a hard time getting breast milk production because they don't start pumping soon enough or by no fault of their own, the hormone cascade that was supposed to happen didn't happen. 
And so when that happens, you, you have this other complication of, will mom even be able to breastfeed? Will she even be able to produce breast milk? Because the hormones we expected to happen to initiate that didn't happen. Um, so then, you know, can she even produce breast milk, let alone, will it be higher calorie by the time she can? Right. Um, also too, like some of the research, although of course this is very understudied, um, but they have kind of suggested that baby saliva may kind of affect the, uh, the composition of the breast milk. And as you know, and I know a lot of times premature babies aren't put to the breast are usually fed by tube. Do you think that also may kind of factor in why the composition may be a little bit different for, you know, premature babies and their, um, what moms are producing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a really important area of research would be to compare exclusively pumped milk versus moms who are having the baby at the breast and seeing if there's a difference in the composition, like overall between those two groups because a lot of the studies on breast milk with preemies was done on exclusively pumped milk. And so one of the limitations of that is, okay, but can we assume that that's what it would have been if baby was actually nursing or suckling at the breast, or was it because it was pumped milk? And we don't know. We don't have enough comparison groups. It would be unethical for us to be like, nope, you can only pump, <laughs> right? Like, so it becomes really tricky to like even get that research. Um, and we don't have that comparison because you're right, it may make a difference. Now, I will say my daughter never nursed. She had a severe oral aversion. She maybe suckled a couple of times in her entire life. Um, what was interesting is my milk was definitely super fatty for her. And of all my babies, so far, she's the only one that I had high lip base which I found fascinating because I wondered if it was my body's way of trying to help break it down more for her so that her body wouldn't have to do as much work. So that's all anecdotal, but I was fascinated by how different my milk was for her while pumping. I did do a ton of skin to skin. And I think that that may have helped that she may have, we still, even though we weren't getting the feedback through the nipple, we were getting feedback with her being on me and her body regulating on me. And I think that that may have done a lot. She was literally held skin to skin for at least one nap a day for the entire first 15 months of her life. So she had lots of skin to skin. <laughs> and I think that may have made a difference. Um, again, totally anecdotal, but one of those things that makes you kind of question like, okay, why hasn't the research gone here yet? What could we learn from this? And what are we kind of missing by not looking down this path? Right, absolutely. And me and you are both huge fans of Skin to Skin. <laughs> Being in, in the Kangarula Collective and registered Kangarulas. And yeah, me too. Skin to Skin was basically <laughs> all I did while my kids were in the NICU. And we already know there's so many benefits to that as well. So something else I kind of wanted to get into, um, you kind of touched on it, but maybe if you can go a little further into it. So is breast milk for preemies less nutritious than full-term breast milk? Yeah. And so I think I, I always like the caveat of breast milk is always an ideal option, always. 
But just like around six months where breast milk does not have enough iron, does not have enough zinc, and we need to start introducing some complementary foods, it may be that for preterm babies, it is still ideal, but also needs some assistance. And I think that the research is still way lacking to be able to say that definitively. But I think, you know, I, I hear a lot of moms saying, well, my breast milk adjusts. It's going to be perfect for my baby. Yes and no. Your breast milk adjusts based on what you gave it. How is your nutrition? How were your nutrient stores? How stressed were you during pregnancy? All of those things. Your body can't make something from something it doesn't have. So it, it may not be able to. And your body was never supposed to breastfeed your baby at 30 weeks. That was not the expectation. Your breast milk was, is being designed to feed a baby that comes full term. So when it comes early, can your body do amazing things and still provide breast milk? Totally. Is it the ideal thing? And is it going to fit all the needs? Maybe, you know, like the, your baby was supposed to be growing inside of you. They were supposed to be getting all the nutrition for, through your placenta. That's an entirely different thing. If the body is lacking something from your diet, it can pull it from your stores. It can't do that in the same way with breast milk. So I think that it's just, it, it becomes very complicated. It's still an ideal, beautiful, optimal source. Every source agrees with that. World Health Organization, European, you know, um, version of the FDA, et cetera. Everybody agrees with that. But we also see that there might be some gaps that because baby was born early, need some assistance being filled. Absolutely, absolutely, totally agree. And so if there are any researchers, you know, watching this video, <laughs> we would love to see more research in this area for, um, for sure. So, okay, you know, I'm a doula, I do a lot of birth work, and something that I go through with my clients all of the time is, you know, telling them what all the benefits and the risk and the alternatives of using certain things. So let's kind of talk about that. What are some of the benefits to the fortifiers? And if you want to go into some of the risks as well, go into that. Sure. So, you know, the, the benefit, so why we would consider a fortifier, it's not just about the calories. Um, now I will say one of the things that we have to kind of recognize is that again, the research fortification and this idea of how much baby should gain in the NICU, et cetera, per day is based on the expectations of how the baby would grow in utero. It begs the question, should we assume that a baby born preterm is going to grow like a baby would have grown in utero? That's our standard. We use that as the standard. There is a huge question mark as to whether that should be the standard. Should we assume that premature babies are just going to grow differently? Um, so that we could be starting from like a, a, a poor foundation that we're assuming they need to gain this certain amount. And it's unrealistic to think that they will gain that, um, which then what do we do? Well, we need to fortify because the only way they're going to gain that amount is if we do this. So first, just recognizing that, that the research, all of this research is based on the assumption that we're trying to keep the baby, these premature babies growing the way we expected a full term baby to grow. Then when we add those fortifiers for preterm babies, what we find is that their protein needs are higher, their calorie needs are higher, and then they also have higher phosphorus, vitamin D, and iron needs, and, that, and calcium. And that's because a lot of that is being 
transferred from mom in the third trimester. So they haven't gotten their full stores of any of those things. And then when they're born premature, they kind of like, oh, it got cut off. They were supposed to still get all this stuff and they didn't. So that's why, again, those needs are higher. And we see those babies growing closer to this expectation when they get more phosphorus, more calcium, more iron, more protein, more calories. So that's why we fortify. And those are the potential benefits of fortification. And the research does back that babies seem to grow, breastfed babies grow more similarly, similarly to fully formula-fed babies in the NICU when they get fortification. Again, it's up for debate whether that's how we want them to be growing, but well, if we're using that as our trajectory and our goal, they do get closer to that when they have fortification. The downsides of fortification, um, one, they might not be tolerated. Um, almost all of them are based on cow's milk. And so some babies don't tolerate the cow's milk fortifier. Um, two, there's an assumption. I think there's a reliance on fortification rather than looking for alternatives. So asking the question as to whether a really small baby would be better off doing more frequent, smaller bolus feeds, smaller feeds rather than the every three hour feeds, which may just be too much for their bodies. And we wouldn't expect them to take that. Um, there's a question too, whether little, little babies should be on continuous feeds. Um, because if you think about a baby in utero, they are on continuous feeds. They're constantly being fed. There's no fluctuation. They are constantly receiving nutrition from mom. So then to have a 28 weeker and assume that they're going to be able to do a feed and then nothing, a feed and then nothing and still meet all their needs, maybe, but that's not how they would have been eating in utero. So if our expectation is for them to grow like they would have grown in utero, we might need to feed them like they would have been fed in utero. Um, so that's another consideration. You know, with my daughter, she did not tolerate fortifiers, um, like got really distended, really not good. We immediately had to pull them back. And we discussed, well, why can't we increase her volume? If she's tolerating the volume, why can't we increase? And I swear to you, the NICU team looked at me like I had three heads, like they had never considered that before. And they were like, oh, well, I guess we could. <laughs> so we did. <laughs> but it was so funny because they have, you know, a very strict regimented plan with the fortifiers that sometimes thinking outside that box can be challenging. Um, and the other thing is, you know, with tolerance, there's a lot of iron and it's it's synthetic iron. So for some babies that can cause digestive distress and constipation and all that good stuff. Um, it also, there's an increased risk of neck with any sort of formula, which includes like fortifiers. So you do have some increased risks and some increased, you know, potential problems. I know you love the microbiome. So introducing anything other than breast milk um, can also alter the microbiome. So there are other factors that could be problematic and it's kind of weighing whether the benefits outweigh those risks. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, I love that you kind of mentioned like the the weights of preemie babies and how they kind of in the NICU they grow to where formula fed babies grow, but we also know that breastfed babies definitely kind of grow a little bit differently to uh, formula fed babies. Um, so again, more research on this, but I think that is a good point that you have mentioned is like okay. 
they're growing like formula fed babies should, but is that really how they're supposed to be growing? And when we think of even just full term infants um, as well, we see that a lot of the weights and the growth are, are used in comparison to formula fed babies. So that is something that's a really, really, really good point that you mentioned. And okay. I'll also say one of the things that was super interesting in the research is that there's something called the breastfeeding paradox where they looked at premature babies and they found that they had slower growth during hospitalization, which often the research would suggest is problematic, that that would be concerning and that could have long-term poor growth outcomes. But what they found was that almost all of those bab babies caught up to non-breastfed children by the age of three and had improved psychomotor development at two or five years than the non-breastfed. So it's a paradox because it doesn't, it, they, they're not fitting what we would expect is going to have the positive outcomes. What we generally see is babies that don't grow well in the NICU, suffer growth issues outside of the NICU, have long-term developmental issues. But with the fully breastfed babies, many of them seem to go against that. And even though they're growing slower, their development doesn't suffer. So it's really interesting. And it's something that, again, warrants a ton more research, but trying to understand what it is about the breast milk or what it is about what, how, you know, what, what's different that those babies are able to be successful in this, these developmental outcomes, despite not fitting the parameters for what should be successful. Wow. So fascinating. Yeah. That's so, <laughs> so interesting. Wow. Okay. I love that. So, and for anyone who's watching, we are going to be putting some of the references um, to the research that is out there. Um, if you're watching the replay, you'll find it in the description. Okay. So something that you've kind of talked about, we've, we've, we've talked about like what, you know, what mom's environment um, during her pregnancy can and her diet during pregnancy and things like that um, can affect a lot of different factors. In fact, we have uh, noticed that moms that may have had really, really poor diets, a high stress levels in pregnancy are actually at more at risk for having a premature baby. So once a mom does, um, if she does have a premature baby, what are some things that she can do either diet wise, environmentally, um, if she's breastfeeding, what is something that she can do to, I guess, you know, help with feeding her baby and kind of dealing with the process of having a premature baby? Are you thinking specifically in the NICU or once they're home? In the NICU, we could do both. Let's do NICU and then once she goes home. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, making sure she's feeding herself is super important. Um, I know like I was so stressed. I dropped my weight almost immediately. I was lower than my pre-pregnancy weight. My mother was literally bringing me cookies and being like, just eat because I was like so stressed out that everybody was very nervous that I was like going to lose my milk supply, be really sick, like be in trouble. So making sure that you are taking care of yourself as hard as that is, is so important because you're not going to be able to produce breast milk for your baby if you're not taking care of yourself. And um, making sure too that you are pumping regularly if you want if you want to breastfeed and your baby's not at the breast, not able to be at the breast, or you're not with the baby all the time. Um, it is. I mean, I set alarms every three hours <laughs> overnight, and I got up every three hours religiously. Um, to pump because that's what was necessary to make sure I maintained an adequate supply. Um, 
So getting support for that, getting lactation support, getting all the support so that you can successfully transition. Um, if you know you're going to have a preterm baby, making sure that you have somebody who is going to be there, who is going to help you pump within an hour of that baby being delivered. We know you have a better chance of getting good breast milk production if there is milk removal within that first hour. I was literally unconscious for my daughter. This was to me. And before I was even conscious, was holding my pump on me and pumping for me because she knew that this was like very important to me. And she had set alarms on my husband's phone. It was like every two hours, you need to do this until she can do it herself. And I fully credit her for my vast success with being able to provide breast milk to my child because I was not, I was not functional for hours after her birth. Um, and yeah. I had already produced multiple ounces of colostrum because it's somebody so, had, yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. I remember cause I, you know, I was a breastfeeding counselor and very into breastfeeding. And I remember like right after I had, and it was both of my kids, like, but I would probably even say more so with my second preemie, which was my son, like barely off the C-section table. I'm like, <laughs> I need a pump. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Oh, where is my pump? Like, can, so I, can I get something? Like, and the nurses are looking at me like, dude, like, just calm down. We'll give you your pump. And I'm like, I got a pump within the next couple hours if sooner. Like, yep. where is it? So even and something that we talk about a lot in the Kangaroola, um, actually is even if you don't have access to a pump, um, hand expressing or hand express. Yeah, yes. whatever you need to do, but do yes. something to get some colostrum milk removal because yes. we want to try and get especially if you had a C-section, because right. you didn't get the hormone cascade that will alert the body that it should start doing this. And so it becomes even more essential. And remembering that stress hormones are absolutely in contrast to oxytocin, which is the one of the massive hormones of good milk production and letdown. And so if you're stressed, terrified, fearing for your life, fearing for baby, um, that that's a complete hard stop on breast milk production. So to get that geared up, you have to work like extra to get those hormones back in gear, to get out of that fight or flight and to get into actual milk production mode. Um, so those are things to kind of keep in mind. Um, I literally with my third had written a list of like, if I am not able, someone needs to pump or put the baby on me, even if I'm not awake, like we're <laughs> like a list of instructions of how to handle this in case anything happened this next time around. Um, so, you know, those are really good things to do. There is some research that suggests when women pump and, and we think it applies to when they nurse too, weirdly, and this might be why power pumping works. Um, 30 minutes later, they seem to have the highest percentage of fat in their milk. So if you're trying to get really fatty milk and you're pumping for your baby, one option would be to do one or two sessions a day where you pump, wait 20 to 30 minutes and pump again, knowing that that milk should be the highest calorie milk that you're producing. So that's an awesome. option. Um, the other thing I would recommend, like if it were me now in the NICU, is talking with your provider about the options for fortification. So there is a standard fortification where we assume everybody's breast milk and everything is the same and we just fortify the same. And then there's an adjusted fortification where we actually take labs and look at baby's um, 
blood urea as a marker for protein. And if it's below a certain threshold, we supplement specifically with protein fortifiers, not just calories in general, um, which has been shown to potentially have better outcomes. So supplementing just calories grows fatter babies. It may not translate into better growth. We want to see kind of like linear growth too. Higher protein seems to translate into better overall growth, proportional growth. So that's an option is talking with them and saying like, okay, wait a second, <laughs> baby is gaining weight, but let like, can we check these levels? Oh, look, their urea is low. Can we supplement with protein? And then we could just do a protein fortifier. So that can also be an option to consider for more tailored fortification. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. And that's something actually that I didn't even know is that you could do like, you know, protein fortifiers to kind of just talk about you know, the regular fortifiers. Um, so that is so fascinating. Um, and something else that you had mentioned, if you can go into more detail, is yeah. the frequency of the feedings. Can you tell me how someone, if they're in the NICU and their baby isn't tolerating the, the fortifiers, like what can they do in that instance? Yeah. And so if the baby is able to nurse, then I would, and, and, able to is such a relative term because there's a difference between what the NICU says they're able and when they might actually be able. But if you're actually nursing at the breast, um, you know, asking to do it on demand rather than, well, I, I'll use a slightly stronger word, telling them you're going to do it on demand <laughs> rather than on a schedule, your baby, you get to feed them when you want to, um, <laughs> just to be clear, but they're going to push back. <laughs> so, um, but that's one option is to let them do smaller, more frequent feeds because you and I both know as lactation counselors that every three hours, that's eight feeds a day. That's the minimum we want to see for a newborn baby. And that's a full term newborn baby. So it's totally feasible and acceptable to think that your premature baby might want to be nursing every hour, nearly around the clock. And if they're able to do that and are showing adequate wet diapers, adequate output, adequate growth, there's really no reason they shouldn't be allowed to do that as long as you are comfortable being there to facilitate that. It does get complicated if you're going to be gone part of the time because it it is not reasonable to expect the NICU to adhere to that kind of schedule. They just can't. They don't have enough people available to do that. Um, the alternative would be when you're gone to talk about doing a continuous feed for the baby. And then they'd be getting kind of all the time a small drip of continuous. And then when you're there, feed on demand as often as they want and then go back to continuous. So that would be an option. But kind of discussing those things about you know, how do we get them closer to what would be physiologically normal if they were home with me or if I was here all the time? How can we kind of replicate that here versus these big volume feeds every three hours? Awesome. That is amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm sure there's someone out there who who's like, okay, my baby's not really tolerating these feeds. Like, what do we do now? And um, I, I'm pretty sure you also know the babies, premature babies have that they're more likely to have reflux and things like that. And they're yeah. very, very, they have a very sensitive microbiome and things like that because they're so early. So Thank you for sharing that like tidbit of wisdom and, um, you know, techniques. That's awesome. Um, so another thing that I really, really wanted to talk to you about was, okay, so in my premature uh, journey, I'm sure a lot of people know that it's really hard to breastfeed 
your baby, especially if it's premature, um, especially on the breast, that's very difficult. Um, and, you know, continuing a pumping supply. So it was actually a dietitian um, when I was in the NICU <laughs> that actually kind of helped me figure out a way to move to fully breastfeeding with my premature baby. So do you have any tips for moms who are wanting to eventually get to fully breastfeeding their uh, baby, whether that's um, on demand and nursing or through pumping? Yeah, I mean, so if it's with pumping, you would just, you can just kind of go ahead and start. Um, if they've been fully on formula, I would do a slow transition. Anytime we change something with their very sensitive digestive systems, it can make them mad. Um, so like literally take a quarter of the expected bottle volume, change it for breast milk, leave the formula. If they tolerate that for three feeds, move up to the next one. We're just, you know, half of it for breast milk to formula. So really a slow progression. If you're trying to get them to the breast, my recommendation, because I, you may or may not know this, I also consult for a home tube bleeding group. So we get a lot of babies that were premature and go home on tubes and we're transitioning them off of tubes to oral feeds, which could be bottles or could be breast, but we're transitioning them. So one of the first things to do is to make sure you're offering the breast first so that that way they have an opportunity to fill up on the breast before you would do a tube feed. Um, there, this is where I would recommend working with a lactation counselor because what we want to do is make sure the baby's actually removing milk. And so we want to make sure that they're getting into a good suck, suck, swallow pattern that we can tell they're actually removing and they're not just suckling. Um, you know, mom can do some breast compression at the same time to assist. Um, for some babies, doing like a supplemental nursing system is great because that way they're on the breast and they're stimulating the breast and they might be getting some, but we also know they're getting something through <laughs> the system as well. Um, and with a lactation counselor, you could also do a weighted feed and that would give you some sense of like, okay, baby is transferring something. Um, and so that's kind of the first place to start and then tubing or, or kind of topping up afterwards. Um, and then as baby is getting more confident at the breast, doing less of a top up afterwards. So you're gonna leave room that they're not getting a full feed. Hopefully so that they're hungry and they'll cue for their next feed and they'll nurse more so that they start to learn how to self-regulate. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And yeah, for breastfeeding, um, your premature babies, like I, I do want to preface that trying to get your premature baby to the breast is it, it takes time and it takes a lot of patience and it's kind of a long-term thing. I don't think I really got my babies to fully nurse on my breast until they were like, three or four months old. So it is a process. So if that's something that you want to do, that team of health professionals is going to be your best friend. So find a lactation consultant um, that feels really comfortable with working with you and your premature baby. Um, having a dietitian, again, is who is, you know, if there's one in your NICU, talk with them, having that chat with them as well. So this is a team effort. I know a lot of times we kind of see the NICU nurses and we see the pediatricians um, and things like that, but we don't always have those connections with the lactation counselor or with the dietitian um, in the, our NICU space. So 
that's super, super important as well. Make sure you have that support um, of professionals. And uh, here in Cleveland, we have the Cleveland Kangaroo Collective. <laughs> um, and hey, actually, let's let's kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, if you want to even discuss a little bit more about what kangaroos are and where you can find us. Yeah, so we, um, kangaroos, you know, many people have heard of doulas. And so a kangaroo is kind of like a doula for the baby. So our job is to really advocate for that baby and making sure that that mother-infant dyad is kept together as much as possible. So we advocate for immediate skin to skin. We advocate for, and that includes preemies. We advocate for preemies going on to mom and being regulated there. In, in, in most cases, unless your baby needs immediate life-saving surgery or literally needs to be electronically resuscitated, anything they need to do can be done on mom's chest. <laughs> There's just very little that can't be done on mom. Um, and the research is pretty clear on this, that it is far more likely that the baby will stabilize faster and do better on mom than if they're removed from mom and you try to do the same sort of stabilization elsewhere. So really advocating for that, really pushing for that um, is kind of the first step. And we are there to kind of encourage that <laughs> and support that and challenge them not doing that. Um, but then if that hasn't happened, you know, really having that lactation support, having that that skin to skin support in the NICU, because um, a lot of times, you know, you get to the NICU and the baby is enclosed and they're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to upset them. And so they don't take the clothes off you're really not getting the same benefits if you're not doing actual skin to skin. So this is a great time to pull off, open up that onesie and get chest to chest and make sure they're getting all of that. And again, that's kind of what the kangaroos help facilitate is getting you in a nice position that you're all cozy and comfy, that the baby's chin isn't too tucked and they're not going to be dropping their heart rate or they're breathing on you. Um, you know, all of those things. And then watching for those cues when they want to try and nurse to encourage them to go to the breast, to suckle, to experiment, um, and just start creating those bonds that should naturally be happening. Yes, absolutely. And so one of the key things that if a key takeaway in, in all of this, if you have a premature baby, is how important skin to skin really is for your premature baby. Um, not only just for like bonding, but also with helping them grow, they're actually more likely with a combination of breastfeeding and skin to skin, they're actually more likely to get out of the NICU sooner mm -hmm. than if you didn't do any of that at all. Um, so with, and in addition to that, we've got um, helping with the baby's microbiome, especially if your baby was born by C-section. Um, and then skin to skin helps with improving breastfeeding as well. So that's a really key takeaway that I hope that everyone who is watching um, kind of understands. And part of the references that we're going to have listed is the research from Nils Bergman, who is actually the one who really created the kangaroos, and he's literally a little genius along with uh, Jill, <laughs> appreciating his research and study in this. Um, so, and uh, the infant microbiome, I am a teacher for the micro biome baby, uh, where we really talk about how, you know, you know, skin to skin and vaginal deliveries can be so beneficial to the immune system of baby. Um, so that is 
all that I really have, like all the questions that I have for you today, but is there anything that you want to add? Um, any more key takeaways that you want um, other moms that are having or that, that do have premature babies, any key takeaways? Yeah, the only other, there were two things that came to mind. One, if if your baby really needs a fortifier, if that seems like the best option, one thing to ask about at the NICU is something called Prolacta, which is actually a milk fortifier made from breast milk. Um, it's kind of a closely guarded secret at the NICUs because insurance often doesn't cover it and the NICUs have to kind of cover the cost. Um, and they also have a limited supply. So it's not available to everyone. Um, our our daughter used it because she did not tolerate fortifiers. It was it was nasty. We were very nervous about her developing neck. It was it was it. She was showing all the signs that there could be problems, but she was also very growth restricted and really needed the extra boost. Um, we were able to successfully use Prolacta for several weeks at the NICU. The disadvantage of this is that it is not available outside the NICU. So if your baby is doing really well on it, you'll either need to wean to a different formula or you're going to have to come off and see if they can tolerate higher volume, et cetera, before you would go home from the NICU. So something to just be aware of. Um, the last thing I wanted to like definitely talk about was, again, in terms of how scanty the research is, um, almost all the research on fortification is for outcomes in the NICU. There's almost no data on whether exclusively breastfeeding mothers continue fortification after they leave the NICU. So anything we're seeing is talking about what growth trends we're seeing in the NICU, and it doesn't look at whether that's required after the NICU, whether those babies would do better, whether it's different when they exclusively breastfeed at home. There's almost no literature on that. So that's one thing to keep in mind is that um, by and large, all this research is based purely on in-hospital statistics, and there are no long-term studies following those, well, very few long-term studies following those babies to see if fortification is still necessary after the NICU or if moms even continue to fortify when they come home from the NICU. Um, because a lot of moms that are breastfeeding and are told like, yeah, throw in one fortified bottle that may or may not be happening. <laughs> so, so again, there's an assumption that they might be going home on fortification, but is it really actually happening? Um, or are we just assuming it is? And then how are the outcomes? Right, right. Okay, wow. That is a two very good points. And um, something else before we really kind of start to close up that you mentioned, because I'm like, oh, okay, well, what are some of the signs that babies aren't tolerating fortifiers? I feel like that's something that people should definitely know. Yeah. So, I mean, if your baby was advancing feeds really well and they start fortifiers and all of a sudden they're backtracking and they have to back off or the baby is was stooling every day and now they're not, or their belly is getting distended and they're a little concerned about that. Those are all indicators. They're suddenly spitting up a ton more. Those are all indicators that they might not be tolerating the fortifier. Um, and it's complicated because in this country, we don't do probiotics as standard care in the NICU. Other countries do. Um, so there is a question as to whether if we were incorporating probiotics, would we see the same rejection of fortifiers or would that mitigate some of that risk? Um, but yeah, anytime you're seeing like baby's doing really well and all of a sudden 
oh, they took a step back. They need more breathing support. They need more this support. They're having, that can be an, our question is what changed? And if the only thing that changed was the fortifier, then it may be wise to pull the fortifier and see if baby stabilizes again. Okay. Good. Awesome. And then last, last thing as a dietitian, <laughs> what would you suggest diet wise for moms? Can I, I guess, cause you have written an article on my blog about breastfeeding and diets. Um, so if you want to kind of go in, is there any way that a mom can, you know, improve her diet and therefore improve her breast milk? Why don't we, cause I feel like that'd be a great question or some questions that someone might have. Yeah. So, I mean, um, without going into a whole nother <laughs> webinar, um, you know, the basics are, you know, the basics are basic, good nutrition. So really good protein sources at every meal and snack, because again, remember there is research to suggest that mom getting adequate protein translates to better protein in the breast milk. Um, getting healthy fats, not being afraid of those really healthy, good fats, especially like DHA, which is great for baby's brain health. And if you've got a premature baby, we really want to watch out for that, that brain health. What we do know is while we, our dietary fat might not change the amount of fat in our breast milk, it does change the type. So if you are eating DHA, if you're eating fish and seafood and algae, et cetera, or if you're taking a supplement that will translate into more DHA in the breast milk. Um, just getting enough calories. <laughs> I just see so many moms that are like st stressed or focused on baby or wanting to bounce back afterwards. Your calorie needs post pregnancy and while nursing are exponentially higher than at any point during pregnancy. Um, especially if you had a C-section, um, you, you underwent major surgery, your calorie needs for recovering from major surgery are already elevated. And then you add lactation on top of that mind bogglingly high, <laughs> like it's, it's very, very high. Or if you had any tears during delivery, um, all of that tissue repair takes extra protein, takes extra calories. And so your body has to make a choice if you're not eating enough between repairing your body or building really good breast milk. Don't make it choose. Give it all the things it needs so that it doesn't have to choose between those things. Um, so those are the big ones. And then keep doing your prenatal, a really good prenatal. I know a lot of moms stop their prenatal. Pregnancy is exhausting. If you went into preterm labor, there are a lot, a lot of times underlying deficiencies or stress markers that are depleting your system even further. Breastfeeding is depleting. This is the time that you need all the nutrients. So really making sure you're still taking that prenatal. I recommend taking your prenatal for at least six months after you stop breastfeeding, whenever that is. Um, because moms are just so depleted after that, that postpartum period. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that I, I am always recommending. And one of the questions that I'm still asking my moms who I'm working with as far as lactation and postpartum, are you still taking your prenatals <laughs> along with assessing like how well she's eating in general? And if you guys are really interested on diet and breastfeeding, Aubrey did write a, an amazing post on my blog. I'll add that link to the description. Um, and so, yeah, let's kind of like close up a little bit and tell me like, you know, what services you offer, where we can find you on the World Wide Web um, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and any offerings that you have. 
Yeah, so um, I offer dietetic as well as lactation services. I'm actually um, sort of a perinatal fitness trainer as well. So I can I also incorporate a lot of like fitness work with my clients. Um, I know we were talking just before we started about like, I'm still exercising very heavily <laughs> during my pregnancy. <laughs> I promise I won't make anyone do that unless they want to. <laughs> um, so I offer all of those. So most of my sessions, especially postpartum are talking mom and baby because I, it's so hard to divorce one from the other. So if you're coming to me to talk about postpartum stuff, I'm going to ask how nursing's going. Um, so yeah, I offer all those. I also offer second opinions, growth assessments, um, because I get a lot of moms, premature babies or not, who their doctors have made them afraid they're not, the baby is not growing well. And so I offer second opinions and assessments as to whether their growth is actually a problem. Um, spoiler alert, so many times it's not. <laughs> so, um, so that can be really reassuring. So I work with a lot of moms on that as well. Um, you can find me at Matrescence Nutrition. Um, I assume you're going to put it in there because everybody, it's it's hard to spell. So <laughs> we'll put it in the, in the link. Um, but you can find me there. And that has also has some of my blogs. And you can get a feel kind of for my services and my style. And then I'm also at matrescence.nutrition on Instagram as well. Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. And um, again, Aubrey, I just want to thank you for letting us use your brain and <laughs> <laughs> kind of discuss these topics as I do feel like it is not very well talked about. And again, if we have any researchers watching this call, please let's try to get some research into this area so that we can, you know, feed our babies well um, and take care of our, our moms and acute babies. So awesome. Thank you so much, Aubrey. You're the best. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> yes. And you guys can find me also on Fruit of the Womb Birth. Um, that's one B because I forgot the Bs. <laughs> Um, fruitofthewombbirth.com uh, or Fruit of the Womb Birth on Instagram. And if you guys are interested in my uh, microbiome class, I do have a course that's coming up in June where we really talk about how birth affects your baby um, and how, uh, you know, the immune system and birth kind of come together and how you can kind of improve those things. So again, thank you, Aubrey. And we will talk to you guys later. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, but remember our journey together is far from its conclusion. Ensure you tap that notification bell to stay in the loop about upcoming episodes. Don't forget the valuable resources waiting for you in the podcast description. Also, do you love this podcast? Show your love by leaving a stellar five-star review spreading the word across your social circles, or even becoming a listener supporter, contributing financially to sustain this podcast's existence. If a specific topic tickles your fancy or you aspire to be a guest on our show, don't hesitate to submit your ideas via the link in the podcast description. And to all you incredible women who are expecting or planning to conceive, I'm well aware that fears around childbirth can be overwhelming. From concerns about hospital procedures to coping mechanisms during labor, I've got your back. What's even better is that you can now access your free guide on mastering five techniques to conquer the fear of birth. As a bonus, discover a collection of mindfulness tools, Q 
curated to quell anxiety and fear during pregnancy and childbirth. The guide's link awaits you in the podcast description. Live long, loud, and in prosperity, dear members of the Rebel Birth Crew. Until we cross paths again, thrive unapologetically.